Hello, and welcome to the Data Cloud Podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Bob Muglia, an enterprise builder and author of The Datapreneurs, The Promise of AI, and The Creators Building Our Future. Bob is one of the most influential tech leaders of our time. After spending over 20 years at Microsoft, he went on to have several impressive leadership positions, including the previous CEO of Snowflake. In this episode, Bob answers every question you may have about the current and future state of generative AI. He talks about being a tech and humanity optimist, a Snowflake CEO, his new book with our very own Steve Hamm, and much more. So please enjoy this interview between Bob Muglia and your host, Steve Hamm. How you approach data will define what's possible for your organization. Data engineers, data scientists, application developers, and a host of other data professionals who depend on the Snowflake Data Cloud continue to thrive thanks to a decade of technology breakthroughs, but that journey is only the beginning. Attend Snowflake Summit 2023 in Las Vegas, June 26th to 29th, to learn how to access, build, and monetize data, tools, models, and applications in ways that were previously unimaginable. Enable seamless alignment and collaboration across these crucial functions in the data cloud to transform nearly every aspect of your organization. Learn more and register at www.snowflake.com summit. Welcome, Bob, to the podcast. Hi, Steve. It's good to see you. Yeah, I hardly see you anymore, you know? Uh, not as much as we used to ha, see ha, each other, that's ha, for ha. sure, although, although we still see each other occasionally. Yeah, yeah. Bob, Bob and I worked together on his book, The Datapreneurs. I helped him write it, and it's coming out today yeah it's pretty exciting yeah so what have you been up to since you left snowflake what was it four years ago yeah well uh, what i focused on is really working with a number of small companies that are in the data industry doing things that i thought were innovative and different uh i really felt like like with snowflake we had built something that really mattered to the industry we solved a problem that had been incredibly problematic for customers for many years, which is the ability to get all of your data in one place and have all of your users working on that data in a very consistent way and have a consistent view of it and really enabling companies to become data-driven. I mean, that was that was the, the objective of what I was doing with Snowflake. And the Snowflake team has done a fantastic job of delivering on that yeah. and continuing to advance the products forward. You know, I focused on problems that I thought were not solved that were, were different areas. You know, an example of that is is the space of complex data, working with what people typically call unstructured data, images, videos, things like that. How can we actually get insights from those things? And, and now that's becoming possible with machine learning. So are you an angel investor? Or, I mean, how do you, how does it work? How do you fit in? Sometimes it's angel. I mean, that's early for me. I usually am a little bit when companies have, I can help a, com- a founder who has a strong idea and needs to productize that idea. They need to work, you know, figure out how to work with customers, how to bring the product to market, how they should price it and how they would sell it. I help entrepreneurs, CEOs that are, are, are working with very early stage companies, typically like what you might call Series A, although that, okay. those terms don't mean as much anymore. They used to have more yeah. meaning than they seem to today. Yeah. But er, you know, not quite the earliest of stage where you might think of an angel, but where companies have a product that they're trying to get to, to be the minimum viable MVP product out, out in the market. That's pretty much yeah. my sweet spot. Yeah, yeah. So you've been very busy throughout your career, you know, either running businesses or advising small businesses. 
you've never written a book before. So why did you decide to write your first ever book? After I left Snowflake, I realized that there were a number of ideas I had and things that I had learned over the years that uh, were useful for people to know. And I, I wanted to sort of get those ideas out there. And originally, I kind of thought I might write a few blogs or you know, get a few blogs written that they're just targeted at, at different areas. And that's when you and I got together. This was almost two years ago when we first started talking. And you know, if, if you recall, we were really loose in terms of how this might take, what form this might take. It wasn't really, really clear at the beginning. And we really started a narrative. And you know you were you were you were writing down what I was you know what I was had learned over the over my madly career. typing yeah yeah, yeah. and <laughs> and you, you started creating it and then you you know we saw together that there was a story here that could turn into a book yeah. and I think I had the idea of telling the story what I wanted to do was 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 help people to learn these these things that I thought were important for people that are working with data. And so write something that everyone would learn something from. I think one thing about the book, The Datapreneurs, is everyone who reads it will learn something of yeah. interest to them. Yeah. And I think that's true whether, you know, you're Sam Altman or whether you're, you know, whether you, you know very little about data. I think there's yeah. things in there that every person will learn. And, and I wanted to get those down, but I wanted to get them down in a way that, that was fun and, for, and enjoyable for people to read. And that's yeah. when we had the idea of telling the story from the concept of the data entrepreneur. I've worked with throughout my career, and that's where where you came up with the term datapreneurs. Yeah, yeah, no, that was a that was a good moment, a nice pivot point there. Yeah, I mean, for people listening, you know, the the book is a bit of a history, but not a dry kind of history. But it kind of kind of tells the history about the advances in data management and data analytics, really starting almost from the beginning of computing. It's, it's also partly a memoir because Bob, you were you know, involved in many of those those moments when, uh, of advance and, and some of the great ideas, some of the ideas that didn't work at various places. And I think that makes it even more engaging. And then, of course, it, we bring it right up to the present. And it was just, I, I, I thought it was just fascinating the way it worked, that there we were kind of figuring out how to end the book. And then late last year, all of a sudden, these large language models, these these uh, you know these kind of major new advances in AI started popping, and ever since it's been like a wildfire. So <laughs> you know, it's AI is on everybody's lips as far as I can make out. We've had these huge advances. How do you address AI in the book? Well, I tried to address it in the context of where we started from, which is telling the story of these data entrepreneurs over a period of time that have led to where we are today. Because it really is, there really is a history behind all of these things. This didn't all happen in the last two years. I mean, it's been going on for decades, really. And the, it is a series of innovations that have occurred over really a 40, 50-year period that have led us to where we are today. And and you know, the book is driven by this idea that there's an arc of data innovation that has happened over time. And when I started working with you, Steve, on the book, you know, I thought about that arc from the very beginning. But what I, I where I sort of saw it, it ending was, was really the data economy and what we were building associated with 
all of the things that data is doing to change the way people work and, and, and how it's enriching our lives and, and, and helping business in so many ways. And that's what I sort of thought the book would be about. But then, you know, what happened over the last year is this realization that that AI is advancing at a speed that is faster than certainly I understood it was, was advancing. I think most people have been taken somewhat by surprise in the speed of this advancement. And you know, come to realize how profound a set of changes this was going to have in people's lives beyond where we were with data just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. With the potential advent for AGI, artificial general intelligence, you know, machines that can think like an average person, that that is almost certainly going to happen in my lifetime, probably within the next 10 years, maybe even in less time than that, potentially. Yeah. The, the profound impact of that meant that the book needed to evolve somewhat and, and build that out. And so we, we spent a little bit of time really talking about the future of what that, that can lead to as we put it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you're an optimist. You write that AI could help usher in what you call an era of plenty for humanity. So what do you mean by that? Sketch it out for us. Well, you know, I am an optimist. I've always been a technical optimist. I, I think that technology help on on the whole, it helps people to lead richer and more fulfilling lives. Now, that's not to say every technical advance helps everybody in equal ways, because they doesn't. I mean, sometimes sometimes these things you know cause harm to people in a variety of yeah. ways. Yeah. But overall, technology is benefiting mankind. And and you know, as an optimist, I was shaped a lot by the writings of Isaac Asimov, which I read considerable amount in my earlier days when I was in my teens and 20s. And he was also a technical techno-optimist, and he had really envisioned a world of robotics, uh, devices, machines that are intelligent machines that work for people and do things on behalf of people. And in his writings, he talked about how this technology could affect human society. And and he saw it from all of the aspects of it, the complexities, the good and the bad, the challenges that it can bring as well. And so one of the things I sort of realized, if you if you take the the idea that we now have intelligence that we can we can package up in 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 the form of a product in some form. And intelligence has always been something that has been been something only humans really had. I mean, we right. see it in the high order animals. I mean, I think you see it in whales and certainly you see it in some ways in dogs and things, but really true intelligence has been a human, something that has been unique to humanity. Now we see the beginning of the ability to, to, to make software do this. You know, that combined with the knowledge that we have, that we've built up over time, and and together with some of the other advances that could happen in, in reducing energy costs and then potentially using robots to 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 lower the cost of labor it just means that everything will get less expensive um, in particular you know intelligence has the cost of intelligence for some things has dropped considerably in the last six months with some of the artificial intelligence products and, and services that are becoming available today and that's just the beginning of this trend yeah so all of these things have the potential to have tremendous benefit to society but it's also important that we we be very careful with these things yeah yeah well before we get to that and i do want to get to risks you know you talk about the era of of plenty for humanity. You talk about the cost of these incredibly valuable resources going down. But, you know, we've seen 
a tremendous kind of split between the haves and the have-nots, the more and more of, of the resources of the world, the money of the world going to a relative few. Do you see that continuing in this in this era of plenty, or, or somehow does AI help spread it out? Well, you know, when the ChatGPT first came out, one of the first questions that I think people were asking was, was is this technology going to be limited to just a few companies? Is it going to be all in the hands of, you know, a Microsoft and a Google? And is it going to really be available to people across all walks of life? And, you know, while there's no question that there will be value that will accrue to the organizations and people that, that create these products and services, in general, I think they can help everyone and, and that the benefits will, will accrue to, across society. One thing that has happened is, is that the access to this technology is, is immediately became very broad. It was immediately available essentially to anyone. And, uh, and, and really, I mean, there's, there are free options that, that exist for people to have, have access to this intelligence that didn't, didn't exist a year ago. And, and now anyone who really has a, a phone all you need is a, is a smartphone can get access to it. So I think it will be democratized. Yeah. The other thing that's happened in the last few months that I'm very excited about is that, is that the open source models are developing at a rapid rate. And so what, what I now believe is that we're not going to just have Google and Microsoft and Facebook, you know, Meta, a few other companies that, that are the controllers of these large models. I think we're going to see thousands of models out there and that many different people will be able to create products and services and capabilities mm -hmm. built on these different open source models. So I think we're going to see uh, thousands of flowers blooming and many people having op access to the technology. We still have a world where, where resources are, are not equally divided, but right. this is one tech resource that I think will be available to everyone. Yeah. And I think that's hey. great. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. Now, there are serious concerns about the risks posed by AI. And in your book, and also in your, you know, when you talk to people in, in all the formats, you have issued something of a call to action. How do you think the tech and business communities and society in general should address these concerns, these risks? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we talk about in the book, I talk about the need for new social contracts that, yeah. that exist between different forms of different parts of society, certainly including governments, as we start to think about regulating this industry. The, 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 the thing I would distinguish here, and I think it's really important for people to, to, to separate these two things, there is the use of AI as a tool used by people for purposes that are, are whatever the objectives of the person are. And in that context, these are tools like any other tool that people have created. They're just very powerful in a variety of ways. And, and it's important that we recognize that that needs to be thought of as, as really an extension in some senses of our existing laws and structures. Right, right. Because they're really meant with when people do, you know, when people use tools for, a, for, for, for nefarious purposes, to how do you deal with that? And, and like every other tool, it's going to be used, it, the AI is going to be used for good purposes, 
for bad purposes and in some cases for evil purposes by people. And we need to regulate and control that. And here I can look and say that, that, you know, that Asimov was way ahead of his time. And he thought about these issues, you know, when he thought about his world, which was filled with robots. Asimov invented the term robotics, this idea that robotics is robotics is a technology that is created by people for the use of people. That's what robotics is really all about. He really invented that term. And the three laws of robotics that Asimov came up with, you know, in the early 1940s, was was the fund is really a strong foundation for us to think through how the the tools that we create can work for the benefit of people not against them the second thing which is which is which needs to be taken into account is a few years out the, the, the things i'm just talking about now are very real today with with the products and services these co-pilots that are appearing these are all very real uh, tools and service products and services that will help people and also people will you know use for spamming purposes and the deep fakes are going to exist I and mean, all this is going to happen and and i think what will what people will realize is that is that we will just become better educated as a society just like when photoshop came out you started you used to be when i was a kid a picture was guaranteed you had a picture it was it was for sure and then when Photoshop was like, well, maybe not. And it'll just be a lot more of that right now. And certainly with video will be true. So th- that's the one case with people using it as a tool. And there the three laws can, can really help Verutas. But the other thing is this idea, and it's almost a certainty, that these AI systems will continue to advance and get smarter and smarter. You know, it, eventually they will be about as smart as we are and probably at some time after that, they will become smarter than we are, and they will be able to do things that we can't do. We see it already. I mean, they can do all sorts of things we can't do. But it's, some, it's very fundamental because you know our neurons operated at one speed, and the circuits, the electronic circuits that 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 these things are based on, are thousands of times faster right, than than the way our brains work. So it is not surprising that as this technology advances, it could have capabilities beyond what we have. And here we need to think about how we align these new entities. We have to think about them as independent entities that we've created, and to treat them with the respect that we treat other creatures on our earth and recognize that unlike other creatures, these ones are, not, are potentially our peers or maybe someday our superiors in some ways and, and have capabilities beyond what we can do. Right. So we need to make sure we fully align them with our goals. And this is where Asimov in his later writings, this didn't happen until the 1970s when he wrote his robot novels, that, that he, he came up with the zeroth law which right. is this idea that robots cannot harm humanity or allow humanity to come to harm. But it's a much a high order, it's a higher order way of thinking. The difference between a robot and dealing with a person and the issues that a person has versus the broader issues of humanity. And, and Asimov really focused on all of the nuances and, and some of the challenges that associate as these machines become more intelligent. And I do really believe that, that his laws, including that zeroth law, can be a foundational guide for how we build the rules and regulations going forward. Yeah. You know, it's it's amazing. I mean, I, you know, this is a case where leaders of industry are going to Congress 
and asking for regulations, which is not very common. Not so typical, we know, not typical. We, we know how remarkable this moment is in, in the history of our well, nation and the history of humanity, really. Partly they've learned too, though. I mean, really, yeah. I mean, we learned, I learned this the hard way when I was at Microsoft, when we were right in the middle of the DOJ trial, and I was in the center of that. And, you know, that was a real lesson, I think, for the industry. It was certainly a lesson for us, but it was a lesson that was broader to the industry. And subsequently, of course, we've seen what's happened with social media and some of the societal concerns that, that this has created. And now the subsequent regulation that is being discussed, certainly in Europe and, and in the United States. I think that, that that leaders like Sam Altman and others in this industry, Sacha, you know, uh, Sundar, all these leaders have come to realize that they need to partner with the regulatory agencies as they're building this technology. So while it's surprising that, that this is happening, I'm not shocked by it no. because I think the lessons have been learned along the way. Yeah. yeah. Now, early on in thinking through your book, you said that one of the important kind of foundational ideas was something called foundation models. And I think this goes to you know, we all remember when Mark Andreessen from Netscape, you know, famous VC, said software is eating the world. And, you know, people kind of play off on that. And and the, the idea here is, well, foundation models and models are basically eating software. Yeah, right. We say that explicitly in the book, that's, that models are eating, yes. are eating software. Yes, yeah. So talk broadly about models. Why are, why are models so important in general and why are foundation models or large language models so key to where we are in, in the world today? Well, you know, I can argue that, that computing is really, is, is really two things in some senses. It's, it's actually people use com computers to communicate and computers are used to solve problems for people. And when we, when we solve problems for people, what we're doing essentially is creating a model in some sense or another. And people have been modeling for centuries, right? When the Romans... You know, when they when they figured out the viaducts, which are pretty cool, if you've ever seen the water flowing yeah. that, that they did back thousands of years ago, they modeled that. They figured out what they had to do to, you know, I'm sure they built little the little test things and they figured out what it is. And, and, you know, we do that today in, in as we build devices and things. Certainly, you know, you don't create a, a modern device, you know, an aircraft, a car, anything major without going through and doing the engineering modeling associated with that. All of these things are put in, in in the form of models and and when we think about business process when we think about what we do in our daily lives in some senses there is a model we have in our head for what we're trying to accomplish and in business we try and codify that in some sense of ways and we've been doing it in different ways over time i mean models are written are written down in 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 documents they're scribbled on on napkins they're on whiteboards they're all over slack communications i mean they're everywhere except not always in a in a place or in a space where you can put things together and understand it all together in one place and what's happening is that that is becoming progressively more important this idea of centralizing the information the meta knowledge that exists in an organization in a central place is becoming progressively more important. You know, we, we solve the problem of, you know, with the modern data stack of centralizing the data. Yeah. 
the data is now can be for any company and, and many companies have achieved doing this with products like Snowflake. The data is now centralized in one system and is accessible to everyone. But what are they going to do with it? How do they should they think about that data? What are you know, what is the, the, the business process? None of that is centralized currently. It's all all over the place. It's in code. It's in Slack conversations. It's everywhere. So what I think is happening right now is more and more of these things are being put in in a centralized form in some sense. And sometimes these things will take the form of, in, in a sense, these models that are being created, that are the, these new AI models that are, creating, are, are taking some aspects of our business and are incorporating that into the intelligence of the AI. We will also take, and I think over the next few years, build new kinds of databases that allow you to take the knowledge of, of, of your organization, all of the attributes of the business process, how your sales funnel works, what are the important metrics. All of those things can be consolidated in one place, and I think that will be called a knowledge graph. Right. And I think we'll start to see that come out. More and more of what we do in the world will be centralized in these models that that predict how the real world is going to behave and can track on a minute, almost a minute-by-minute minute basis the reality of that real world against the model. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. When I look back on the 20th century, which I participated in half of, you know, I think one of the big flaws, I mean, it looked like it looked like a, a, a value at the time, a good value, was that we tried to solve problems by kind of isolating them and say, ah, yeah, these, these are the dimensions, these are the elements. Let's just solve this thing very in a very focused sort of way. And what we lost sight of was the interconnectivity of things. And I, it seems like models really are allowing us to see things more systemically and to address them more systemically. We're, we're weaving all these things together. The human mind cannot do it. That's why we. That's one of the reasons why we need why we need machine learning. No, that's exactly right, Steve. It, yeah. These things are are more complicated than we can as as human humans can understand. And in fact, one of the challenges I think of putting these models together has been that we need these AI tools to help us to do it. Yeah, yeah. I've come to convince that that except for relatively isolated cases people need these tools to assist them in, in putting the right. models together. And right. it's very fortunate that the, that the transformer technologies have come out in the time, in the time frame they had. They, the, the timing is perfect. I mean, they can solve problems. These new large language models can be applied to solving problems that a couple of years ago there just wasn't solutions to. Right, right, right. That's a beautiful thing. My hope is that climate change can be dealt with. In a, in, a, in a much more kind of rational and comprehensive way using some of these models. Well, I hope so too. I think that we can yeah. learn a lot from, you know, from, from the models effectively. I also hope that, that, that technology will, I, I'm becoming, I, I am, I'm becoming a, an advocate of that fusion may be a solution in, you know, in the next 10 or 15 years. And that would be a major, major thing yeah. if that can happen. Yeah, and and there's never been so much. There's more innovation happening in that space than has happened in my entire life. I mean, fusion yeah. is always twenty, thirty years away, and maybe it's yeah. less now. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, like quantum, like quantum computing. That's I another think that big one. When quantum also, happens, the world's going to change. When the yeah. world's going to change. Yeah, yeah. So you write a lot about the modern data stack in the book, and 
clearly Snowflake is like right in the middle of that discussion. So how do you define the modern data stack and what is Snowflake's data cloud? What, what role does it play in it? And I know, sure. you know, things, things have evolved since you left Snowflake, but kind of give us that, that broad view. Well, Snowflake has really grown to be a full data platform with a full set of services and capabilities for people to work with their data. So it's grown from a, from its original roots of data warehouse to take on multiple workloads in a complete platform. I mean, I, I think of the modern data stack as a set of software services that that deliver data analytics, you know, first and foremost, as a service that you purchase. That's the first and most important thing is that you don't run it yourself. You purchase this from some third-party vendor. And those services take advantage of the scalability characteristics of the cloud. So unlike previous solutions, you can handle effectively any amount of data or any amount of users. And then the last thing I think that's that's the last key characteristic of, of the modern data stack is the data inside it is modeled for SQL databases and it leverages the technology, the SQL technology and the, the, the incredible flexibility that a, a, a modern cloud data warehouse can provide. And in some senses, I think of like Snowflake as the slicer dicers of data. They can take any amount of data you have and they can chop it up any which way you possibly want it chopped up and serve it to you, you know, on the platter that you want it served to. You know, if you want to use Power BI or you want to use Tableau or you want to use a machine learning model, you can you can leverage that from that. And and what's happened is is that with some foundational services like Snowflake, an entire ecosystem has been built around this. And we now have many, many vendors providing a wide variety of tools, tools to, to you know, data pipeline tools, tools that, that do data quality analysis, lots and lots of visualization tools, machine learning tools. All of these tools are designed to work together in a consistent way. And what's been really fun to watch is that, is that you know, from the leadership that we did with Snowflake and, and, and the, the the incredible changes that company has brought to the industry. It's now really fun to see that there are, are five platforms that are kind of building similar things, you know, Snowflake and Databricks plus the three cloud vendors. And yeah. I still have a fan of Snowflake and still and still believe that, that the Snowflake yeah. team is ahead in many ways. But um, it's great to see, you know, it's great to see a number of different vendors offering solutions that have similar yeah. capabilities. Now, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, knowledge graphs. I think there's a lot of disagreement about or, or confusion about what that actually is. Confusion. Yeah, there's confusion. And so you write a lot in the book about knowledge graphs. So tell us about knowledge graphs, but mainly how they can be used along with the modern data stack and machine learning technologies to improve data analytics. Yeah, I mean, a knowledge graph is really a database that can be used, that, that, that can model the complexity of, of the relationships that exist in a, in a business. If you think about what you do with SQL, you model data in SQL, but you don't really model your business. And, and your data model and your business model are not fully aligned. And in fact, that's why your business model is really written typically in Python or Java code, and it's mapped into SQL. The idea of a knowledge graph is that you have a database that can fully model the, 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 the logic of the business and, and the characteristics of the business. And you can actually incorporate that logic into the model. And so it actually can be executable directly. You can do things, mm. you can directly take action from it. 
And it's yeah. it's you know it it is a very powerful concept. I mean, this idea of an executable model has been, on some senses, a holy grail of software development for 30, 40 years. I remember some of the original modeling tools, you know, that go back all the way to the 1980s. And, you know, they were always lacked the, the semantic capability to execute all of the all of the logic that you need. And now by using some new relational technology and leveraging the the foundation of of relational mathematics, it's possible to build models that can fully describe a business and 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 you can leverage those to to actually actually make decisions yeah yeah another thing that you mentioned briefly before was was this concept of the arc of data innovation and you know it's a it's a graph and uh though not a knowledge graph but it, you know it kind of picks up slowly and then it gets really steep at the end Tell us about that. Tell us about the, the how you see, how and why we're seeing this incredible acceleration of technology progress. Why is that happening right now? I drew it as an arc because yeah. it, I feel like that's what it has been. It's been a continuous, it, it, it's continuously speeding up over my career. And, you know, and when I look back, you know, to what I was doing in like the 1980s, you know, when I first joined business, you know, the speed at which things moved was very, very different than the speed at which it moves today. And I mean, we, you know, I, we still did inner office memos, for goodness sakes, you know, when I first, when I first entered, the, the yeah. email didn't exist in my company when I joined, when I joined the industry. My first use of email was when I came to Microsoft in, the, in 1988. And I think about the way we communicate, the way we work and the speed at which we work. What's happened is technology continues to and to advance human society close more and more closely connecting us and allowing us to share ideas with greater and greater velocity and and it's this it's it's, it's this the human society is is increases based on our ability to communicate between us our ideas and then leverage those ideas so you have a good idea if you if you tell me I can leverage that idea and and then tell somebody else and and our ability to do that is just keeps speeding up over time. Yeah. What's happening now is that is that with the fact that we have access to all this data, we can we can improve our decision making capability if we can fully analyze that data and reach conclusions that the, the appropriate conclusions from it. And these tools that are coming out, these new AI tools, the large language models, will simply facilitate that uh, right. and make that faster and, and easier for us to reach conclusions. It'll help us to get conclusions from our data more quickly. And as we, we can make decisions faster, we can implement things faster, and it'll continue yeah. to speed up. And, yeah. you know, it feels like it, it, it just even this year with the changes that's happening in AI, it feels like things are going progressively faster. And and I felt that over my entire career, but it just continues to accelerate. And uh, I think we're still we're really at just the beginning of that exponential curve right now. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, all that when you talk about connectivity, just it's so powerful. You think about Ethernet, what that did, the internet, what that did, and then and then putting Slack. the device and all that into into somebody's hand. Yeah, these were these were some of the big, uh, some of the major advances, and they were really enabled by connectivity. It's really, GitHub. It's cool. I mean, just it's GitHub. Cool just GitHub. Just GitHub. Just yeah. GitHub. 
Just yeah. GitHub, okay? I mean, think about that. Think about that. All the source code in one pl- in one place that everyone can share. I mean, it's just a massive thing that's happened. Yeah. That didn't exist when I started in this. I mean, even yeah. 20 years ago, it didn't exist. Yeah. You know, you're a technology optimist, and I think you call yourself a humanity optimist. What makes you so optimistic? When I was a kid, when I was young, it was the middle of the Cold War. Right. It was, you know, in the 1960s, I went to school in in the Cold War. You know, I ducked and covered right underneath the the desk. I remember that you talked about that. You and I both did this. And back then, the biggest concern was that nuclear weapons would wipe wipe out humanity. It's still a concern. Okay, don't get confused. It's still a concern. Maybe it's a bigger concern today than it's been in a long time even. But but it's it's it is a danger that we've learned to live with as a society and we've created mechanisms to manage it over time. I don't think that anything we're creating has more negative potential than a nuclear bomb. I mean, it's right. hard to right. be worse than a nuclear bomb. And and so what we just have to be sure of is that as we create these tools that have some negative potentials, that we also put in place the mechanisms to manage and control that. And and I don't believe that I'm, I'm not I'm not a naive to believe that things will never go wrong. They will go wrong. Mistakes right. will happen. But we will learn from that as a society and we will recover and we'll be stronger from it. I believe that we that in general society learns from its mistakes, although history does tend to repeat itself. Yeah. Yeah. So we keep them getting, you know, in general, the, you know, in, in, in general, the arc, you know, the arc of society is you know, bends towards justice. Yeah, I, yeah. I do believe that. I do believe that. I hope so. I mean, I, I, I'm a believer in, you know, be a realist, but also be hopeful. So and yeah. then, and then and do and do things to warrant hopefulness. So I think we agree on that. For your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Really need to dig deep and get to know the real you in the real up close and personal. So we typically end the podcast on a lighter note, and you know you refer to the fact that you and I've spent the last two years working together. So what were the best and worst aspects of working with me? Well, the best aspect was that you were an incredible help in, in getting the book done, and, and, and I, I never could have done it without you. I'll say that for sure. And you, you did a great job of, of helping to bring in the color of the book. I mean, you know, I knew all these people are people that I've worked with and known over the years, but you helped in talking to them to bring out some aspects of their lives that I think are, are, are great and, and never would have never would have appeared without your without what you did there. And, and I think you made the book a lot more readable. Um, the you know, the, sometimes I got frustrated because I wanted to get a point across and you were and you were somewhat difficult to get the, you, you were you were a little bit uh, challenging. Would I talk? I would talk over you. No, you ah. just you just didn't listen to me. Basically, <laughs> you just didn't listen to me. But it was really helpful because what I think could happen is if yeah. you sort of look at the way we did this, the technology points and and were you know were things that I focused on adding in, and it was not unusual where I would write something and you'd say, "What the hell does this mean, Bob? I don't understand yeah. this." Yeah. And so it was really helpful was that I think you made the book more understandable to a lot more people, and I and I very much appreciate that. Yeah, hopefully. You're painting the tail, though, a few times. Yeah, yeah. You were painting the tail. Yeah, yeah. This has been wonderful. It's been great talking to you. And I thought there were a lot of interesting, sometimes complex, but very important points to make. I think 
the insight that I think I hope people really go away with is this idea that you brought up near the top of when thinking about AI, we have to kind of grapple with the AI that we have now and hopefully use some of the infrastructure, legal infrastructure, regulatory infrastructure, governance infrastructure that we have to kind of like quickly expand to address it, to address the whole notion of, of people doing evil or or, or nuisance with, with, with AI, but then down the road with AGI, artificial general intelligence, that we have to really think in a, as profound a way as humans can think about this relationship between us and machines and making sure that, that they're working with us and for us and not against us. So exactly. that is a, that's a, that's a wonderful insight and I thank you for it. And I, and I hope a lot of people are listening or reading. I think they are. A lot of people are. I mean, this is one thing that's been very uh, positive is the uniform view that everyone seems to have that, you know, these are, are tools with great potential, but also, you know, they could be used for, ne for, 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 for nefarious purposes. And we need to be very, very, very thoughtful about that. And then in the long run, you know, we're creating independent entities and, uh, and we need to make sure that those entities work with us, not against us. So. Yeah, I like that. So, Bob, this has been great. Wonderful conversation. Delightful to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Steve. Appreciate it. Are you interested in learning how to build on Snowflake? Join other developers, data engineers, and data architects at Snowflake's build.local event series. Roll up your sleeves and explore the possibilities of building on Snowflake with local, in-person, instructor-led workshops taking place across more than 30 global cities now. Learn more and register at www.snowflake.com slash build.local.